Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, today is a little bit special because I have not one guest, but two. We've got Jackie Kempfer, who is Senior Policy Advisor at the Climate and Energy Program at Third Way, and Josh Fried, who is Senior Vice President for the Climate and Energy Program at Third Way. Uh, this is just two people I've spoken to who work on overlapping issues. We had a great conversation about what is actually possible to do in the climate space in a time when we're looking at divided government rather than a kind of progressive landslide. Is the conversation, it really made me me feel a lot more optimistic. Uh, more headway is being made both on the technology front and on the policy front than I think a lot of us really know in terms of new forms of energy, clean forms of energy. So we explore all that. Also, some of the tensions kind of inside the climate movement around specific policy areas. I learned a lot, but I also felt better. Uh, so I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here today. We're doing a, it's a special Friday. I've got two guests on, uh, but they are great. They're colleagues. Jackie Kempfer is a senior policy analyst at Third Way, and her colleague, um, Josh Fried, is the senior vice president for climate and energy. Uh, so they're both very senior, uh, which is good. It's very important. Uh, only have senior senior people. Um, so this is, as you guys know, part of an ongoing series on the next four years. And I know some people who were very um, despondent that the way the election has gone has put aside, well, it's quite a situation where if, if Democrats do well in Georgia, you're going to have um, Joe Manchin and John Tester, who are guys from, from fossil fuel states in kind of key positions in the Senate, potentially Republican majority there. So the kind of left-in vision of environmental policy is not going to work that well legislatively. Uh, but but Third Way, where, where you guys both work, uh, exists, I think, to try to build policy ideas that that work more from those those moderate pivot points legislatively. Um, so I thought talking uh, to, to you two would be a good way to, you know, help people get a sense of like what's really possible here and what's exciting um, about this moment. Uh, I don't know, am I, did I totally misread the, the politics, the situation? 
No, I, th- I think that's right. And thanks for having us, Matt. Um, you know, as, uh, as Jackie and I and others on our team have talked about this, even under the best case scenario, if Democrats had swept as many of the Senate seats that they were competing for and won a larger majority in the House, we still would have had Joe Manchin as the chair of the Energy Committee and people like John Tester and John Hickenlooper as the key deciders of which Democratic policies were going to inevitably uh, get considered and then pass in the Senate. And so while it's unfortunately more difficult now, if there is a Republican-controlled Senate, and we can talk about that versus a Democratic one, it doesn't dramatically, dramatically narrow the aperture of the types of technologies and policies that are going to be considered. There's, there's a vision, right? A sort of a, a purist environmentalist vision, which wants to move to nothing but renewable energy uh, very quickly. Um, and I, I guess what you're saying, and I think this is right, is that was a vision that was never going to fly politically or even just practically, sort of no matter no matter what election results you got. That people who, you know, these communities have their economies built around fossil fuels and they, you know, elected officials may be mindful of environmental concerns, but also aren't going to vote for economic doom for, for themselves and their constituents. Yeah, there's there's the uh, the apocalyptic component of that, which is the economic doom. If you say starting in a year or five years, even we're going to zero out fossil fuels. And that's one side of it that we have to deal with in terms of reality particularly with uh, people like Joe Manchin in the office. The the other part of it, which uh, is the climate pressure against the 100% renewables argument, is the reality that the UN's climate assessments and the International, uh, the International Energy Agency's climate assessments and on and on have found, uh, which is that it's really, really, really hard and really, really, really expensive if we even try to do renewables only just to decarbonize the electricity sector, let alone to eliminate all the fossil fuels from both electricity and industrial policy or industrial actions, which is part of the reason why you know we have uh, Jackie, my colleague on staff who focuses on nuclear, because yeah. we're going to have to use nuclear. So let's, let, Jackie, let, let's talk about, about nuclear. I, you know, one thing that I've seen circulating a lot lately is these kind of good news charts about renewable energy costs, uh, which really have come down quite a lot to the point where new, I mean, new solar and wind, as I understand it, are quite a bit cheaper than new nuclear power, at which point people say, well, like, what's, what's the point of this? Like, Nuclear is is controversial. It gives people the willies. And if it's expensive too, then like, what's it for? Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, first of all, you know, we are incredibly excited to see the continued downward trend of cost for, for renewables. Um, and, you know, with nuclear, when you look at the way renewables would have to be built out, right? Um, if you If you eliminated all nuclear, that's both existing nuclear off you know, decommission, and then you don't build new nuclear. 
the the sheer capacity of renewables that would have to be built out kind of gets at what Josh was mentioning about how much more expensive it is to decarbonize the grid. Um, we've seen really good analyses come out um, from MIT and, and several other sort of organizations and universities over the past few years that show the billions of dollars uh, in excess it would cost to do it with just renewables alone because of the variable nature. Uh, you have to build out enough capacity so that uh, on days where the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing and things are changing constantly through different seasons, that you always have enough. But when you don't need it, it's sitting there and, and not generating money. Uh, it's not economical. So so cost, right, because this is, I think, what, what people need to understand with these charts, right? Cost exists at different margins. Right. And we're right now at a margin where if you take a really sunny day, we are, as a country, generating less solar power than we are consuming while the sun is shining. So there's a margin right now where you just put more solar in Right. And it's cheap. And and like we we should do that, right? Like there's there's programs to do that. I, I put solar panels on my roof recently. But if you're talking about a hypothetical future in which we are powering ourselves on a rainy day in the winter, then you're operating at a different at a different kind of margin, right? Right. And to and to be so overbuilt nationally that you're generating that much power, you're then operating on a much less. Exactly. And I mean, it's also, it's also, I think, important to consider the fact that we're going to continue to see the consequences of climate change impact the very conditions that we're speaking about here. So weather patterns are going to change. Um, we're going to see uh, increase in heat waves where we've seen nuclear, our existing nuclear power plants play in very critical role. Um, in keeping power online in just the same way that they do uh, during, you know, our, our sort of cold snaps that we've seen over the past few years when, when they're very much relied upon to, con- to keep, you know, heat coming to, to people's homes when we are, you know, 20 degrees below zero in some of our North and Midwestern states. Um, and the other thing I would just mention on cost is nuclear specifically, you're looking at really, you know, the, the, the bulk of the cost there is capital, upfront capital cost for building out the reactor. Right. And then over time, you know, when you look at uh, the cost of renewables versus what it what it costs to actually continue to operate and fuel these reactors, that's where you can really see sort of the lines come together on 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 a cost comparison. It's really that upfront capital cost. And especially for the first like, you know, we can talk about existing nuclear, but we can also talk about this next generation of advanced reactors, many of which are smaller. Um, that, you know, the first of a kind, nth of a kind and beyond, those first few are going to be, you know, uh, much more expensive than the 10th, 20th, 50th, 60th, right? So right. it's, I, I feel like when we look at uh, advanced nuclear, you know, I, I kind of foresee a similar, um, and I'm hopeful for a similar sort of track that we've seen with, with renewables going down in cost over the past 10 to 15 years. Um, as we've built out more and more and more and improved and perfected the technology. That's the sort of investment-led model, right? That we we have seen a, a lot of progress on on renewables on too, right? It's the it's the idea that when you when you start doing something at a small scale, it can be very expensive. But if the government can support that activity, you sort of push through, right? And that's different from a vision where, where you have the government sort of um, telling people what not to do. 
Yeah, and and it's it's interesting that uh, over the last year and a half or so, one of the the big emerging schools of thought on energy and climate policy is, you know, you've heard standards, investment, and justice, with the idea being that the federal government will set some form of standard, whether it's a clean electricity standard and a zero emissions vehicle standard, which basically sets a date by which all of the electricity that's generated is net zero from clean sources, a date in which you can't drive a new internal combustion engine vehicle. You do that as one set of policies. You invest in building out the clean energy infrastructure and innovation. And then you also make sure that all of the policies embrace both environmental justice and worker justice. Um, It's something that we've heard a lot about from the Sunrise Movement, Green New Deal. It was really popularized publicly uh, by Evergreen and Jay Inslee in his run for president. We would simply reorder that an investment first and justice simultaneously and standards to follow it. Because the more widespread these technologies become, the less expensive they are, and the more companies that feel invested in expanding their markets, selling whether it's more solar panels or more electric vehicles or charging infrastructure and on and on, you've shifted the political economy. So it's no longer only or significantly about who are the losers, uh, why fossil companies are going to lose market share and therefore they're going to react and put pressure on politicians, or why people in the fossil fuel industry are worried about losing their jobs, and more about auto workers who feel that the next electric vehicle that rolls off a GM assembly line means more jobs for them and for their uh, their fellow union members or people who buy an electric vehicle, not because they're being forced to, but just because it's cheaper, it costs less to maintain, and it's kind of cool and fun to drive. And so it's, it's a different orientation from the conversation to get to the same goal and oftentimes using similar, but not necessarily all of the same policies. I think it also happens to be something we're much more likely to get through in either a very narrow Democratic-controlled Senate and Democratic House with President Biden, or um, parts of it with a narrowly Republican-controlled Senate. Yeah, and I, I think we'll say, you know, so we don't have to keep keep caveating our, our Senate election results, that, you know, it's one way or another, probably we're looking, there's filibuster rules, things like that. We're looking at measures that could have some amount of bipartisan support, most likely, rather than than strictly partisan ones. But can you explain, can, now, can it really be that if I go to the Green New Dealers, they're going to tell me we need standards, investment, and justice? And then if I go to, you know, the, the third way shills, corporate corporate hacks, you're, you're going to tell me, no, 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 it's what well, we need, investment, justice, and standards? Like, that's all the, that's all the difference, the order that we're saying the words in? I mean, if you only use those words, yes, of course. <laughs> of course, you know, it's it's one of those things that's where- That's we're getting into the weeds. Yeah. Because I suspect there's more to it. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think, look, um, I, one of the things that has been particularly interesting over the last couple of years is that there has been a coalescence around similar ideas. Um, it's We're not having battles over, we should just do a carbon tax and that'll be the silver bullet or 
anything like that. So there, there is more general agreement. Um, when you get below that, though, yes, the question of can we do this with renewables alone or do we need nuclear carbon capture and storage, direct air capture, which uh, either uses technology or different agriculture practices to suck carbon out of the air and then uh, store it. Those are big questions. And also how much of this is in partnership with or leveraging the private sector versus using the government to force private sector actions. You alluded to this, this Jackie, um, but I think we should draw people out. Like, what's the difference between existing nuclear? I, I guess you could, in theory, you could do new nuclear that is based on the same kinds of designs. But I think people don't really talk about that now. And then there's a sort of hope for next generation. Like, like what does that all mean? Yeah, sure. So, um, and you're right, right? So, I mean, I think when we look at the different sort of scales that uh, different countries, different utilities are going to need over the next 10, 20, 30 years as we kind of approach 2050, um, I think you'll absolutely still see sort of the large scale traditional, um, you know, generation three light water reactors, right? Um, they're the ones that that most people that actually kind of have seen nuclear before, are familiar with nuclear power, they'll look pretty similar. Um, large cooling towers and uh, produce, you know, thousand, thousand megawatts. Um, and I think there's definitely still a lot of interest um, in these in these types of plants um, across the world. And, and, you know, I'll just say before we get into the advanced nuclear and why that's different, there is still quite a bit of a focus on what's the best way to make sure that we keep the, you know, the existing nuclear plant, plants operating as long as they safely can in the U.S. because of the fact that they they really do make up more than 50 percent of the clean energy that we have um, in mm-hmm. this country that's operating right now. Uh, so there's that piece of it. And then for sure, you know, third way really, and this is why I was so excited to come and join with Third Way about two years ago, was really the first organization in Washington, D.C. to start talking about advanced nuclear um, Mm -hmm. and the role that it could play in addressing climate change. And many of these advanced reactor designs are fundamentally different than the existing technologies that we have today in in different ways. You know, without getting too, too, too wonky in the tech stuff, um, we're talking about completely different types of fuel um, that are that are being utilized as well as different types of coolant that are used in the reactors themselves. Um, in most cases, the size is vastly different. We're talking anything from micro reactors that are producing one to 10 megawatts in, in power on up to, to small modular reactors that are operating around the 300 uh, megawatt range. And one of the most sort of compelling, you know, things about this next sort of advanced age of reactors is the flexibility um, and sort of the new applications that you can really start to see these uh, these reactors playing a role in. Um, so that's anything from, um, you know, powering remote communities for some of these extra small reactors um, that can be, you know, in Alaska, where we right now are trucking massive amounts of diesel out, um, you know, all the time, um, to potential applications in decarbonizing sections of our industrial uh, sector. Um, so, you know, thinking about chemical facilities and mm-hmm. things like that, that right now have to use large amounts of fossil fuels mm-hmm. um, e- each year. And, you know, even to potentially power using a small modular reactor uh, to power transportation hubs 
Hmm. Um, and, and the reason that I just want to highlight, you know, right now, some of the legislation, bipartisan legislation that we've actually seen passed over the past five years has been uh, directing our Nuclear Regulatory Commission to modernize um, mm-hmm. and prepare to license these reactors. Because one of the big changes with the change in size, um, change in enhanced safety um, and things like that, allow you to site these facilities, these smaller reactors in a transportation hub in a city. Um, so just the fact that you can now locate these um, you know, in, in completely different um, sort of urban areas um, uh, is a really big game changer. Right. So the, so the, uh, one of the big policy asks here, right, is that the, the NRC has a process that's built around these sort of bespoke large scale reactor designs, right? And right. people want to make maybe very small reactors that you could build in a factory and ship out. Um, and, and so there's been some, some legislation, right, to try to get the, get the get the process changed. I want to put a pin in the the industrial stuff that that Josh mentioned uh earlier as as well as you. So you have you have these sort of edge cases, right? Where right now we're relying on diesel in remote areas. But so I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Even even a fairly expensive option for powering remote communities would still be very useful. But but what's this about transportation? I mean, I could just hear people being like, I don't really want a nuclear reactor in my transportation hub. Like, wh- why would that be useful? What's what's that good for? Sure. So um, some of the different cases that we've looked at um, over the past couple of years are just how much one small modular reactor could potentially power. So you're not just talking about powering a rail line. You're talking about powering um, electric charging stations in a parking garage that's connected to that. You're talking about um, powering charging stations for for an uh, entire fleet of buses. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, you're you're ca- kind of capturing the entire you know public transportation infrastructure of a of a city. And I completely understand and hear um, and and am aware of sort of um, the difficulty I think for for folks to sort of envision. <laughs> you know, what they think of as nuclear power now being in uh, in their backyard or something that they walk past on their way to, to the office in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been trying to kind of help with that, with some of the work we've done at Third Way. We did a project called Nuclear Reimagined a few years back um, that is essentially trying to help visualize um, what this actually will will look like in practice for folks. And so, um, nu- nuclear energy is is safe, though. I mean, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I right. both want to ask the safety question, but also <laughs> clarify um, right. the the the. I mean, the historical record of nuclear is that despite accidents, many more people are killed by fossil fuels functioning as designed. Um, Right. Just the routine dust and and smog is is much more dangerous, um, and and the the idea of the the next generation is to have simpler cooling mechanisms, right? That it's it's right. a smaller reactor, so it doesn't it still needs to be cooled, but with a with a less complex process right. that should be safer. Exactly. So the phrasing that is typically used um, by the developers and folks in the community is a it's a passive safety system, such that um, if if all power to, were to be lost or you know sort of some external circumstance arose, um, there is no need for generators to be brought in or any active participant uh, on the part of human beings to come in and keep the plant 
from um, from melting down. There's or no having, Homer Simpson in the booth. Exactly. Uh, we don't need Homer anymore. Uh, not in that not in that instance. And that's one of the most exciting developments with with these new technologies. Um, and and that is one of the key key components that allows us to to look ahead to having these reactors play really meaningful roles. Um, in decarbonizing, um, you know, whether, whether, you know, it is an industrial facility or a transportation hub, um, or, you know, operating as part of a hybrid energy system, um, to generate power for a city along with renewables. But the, but the, the change in where these things can actually live and operate, um, is a game changer. So just what's, what's, what's up with, with industry? This is like, I, I, I think this is where normal people don't have their eyes. They're like, okay, I, I know what electricity is. Um, and some electricity comes from, from clean sources and more of it could be clean. Um, and, and we sort of under, like on a technical level, I think we understand how to decarbonize electricity now. Uh, but what's, what's the industrial issue? Yeah. So if you think about where the majority of carbon emissions comes from in the United States, it's essentially divided, the most of it is divided into three equal wedges. One is the electricity sector, which to your point, everyone can envision what electricity is, how we use it, and we know how to get rid of it. Um, the transportation sector, we all drive cars or fly, so we can also envision that. That third sector, industrial, is the use primarily of fossil fuels to produce heat at very high temperatures so that we can manufacture steel, so that we can, what's called crack methane, which is natural gas to turn that into chemicals, or so that we can both heat and then also provide the materials to create cement. And cement and glass and steel in particular are extremely heavily used in the United States because we're building so much every day. And they're commodities that oftentimes are too expensive or too breakable to, to uh, ship over long distances because it just, you start losing money off of them. Right. And so there is still some domestic cement manufacturing and domestic steel manufacturing, and it still requires a lot of fossil fuels. So, so I mean, this is like, you can think about, some of us have, have like gas stoves at home mm -hmm. and we burn fossil fuels to create heat and then we have electric stoves. So you, you, can, you can make it hot enough to cook food by using electricity. But basically the physics are to make it hot enough to make steel with electricity is really, that would, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And uh, it particularly is very hard to figure out how to do with renewables mm -hmm. because you've got in renewables don't always provide the both same level of electricity all the time or the guaranteed 24 by seven access to it. To, and it's it's less efficient. Right. So if you have uh, a nuclear power plant that can produce heat at a much higher level, and you can just accept, access the heat from that, which is extremely safe, we already know how to do it, then you have cut several steps out of the process as well. And you can produce steel or help uh, in the process of creating hydrogen without emitting any carbon dioxide, which is the name of the game in addressing climate change. And, and, and the trick here is that both nuclear and fossil fuels generate electricity by generating heat first. Correct. Right, like that's that's how they, I, I mean, a fossil fuel, but it's like a giant fire. 
right? Yeah, and it boils. I mean, yeah, they're both fancy ways to boil water when right. it comes down to it. So, right. So with a, with a, uh, you could, in, the way nuclear works now is we think of the primary product as electricity and then the heat is waste because you can't co-locate a, an enormous nuclear plant with like a cement factory. But with, well, and it also up until climate change really became a focus of policymaking over the last 10 years, no one had asked uh, in the United sorry. States. <laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those things where if you're a utility and your job is to generate electricity and you get paid a decent amount of money to do it, that's what you're going to do. And if someone comes to you and says, hey, we want to use that heat, but it's going to be expensive to figure out how to do it. And you're going to have to go back to the regulators who are uh, expensive and time consuming to deal with. Why would you do that? Well, I mean, there there is this old fashioned model, right, with with coal of uh, power and steam cogeneration, right? So like I, I grew up in New York and there is this steam distribution network there. And I think they have one on Capitol Hill. Yeah, they still have that. And they have it in a couple other, I think Chicago still has it and a couple other cities. Right. And it's it's really popular in Europe. Right, right. But it's, it, we've, like America has mostly not built around that. Yeah. That kind of model of, of, of doing things. And probably for home heat, we, we would, I think. Uh, just because, like, our houses are too far apart from, from each other. So, in, like, in Denmark, they do this, right? In Copenhagen, there's, like, steam pipes running <laughs> all under the streets every place. Um, but, but so, uh, Jackie, t- tell me about, like, w- the, the the sort of nuclear, like, the nuclear heat industry vision. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, um, look, when you look at the different applications that are going to hopefully be demonstrated, I think, over the next decade um, and, and beyond, um, the using advanced nuclear to generate heat um, is absolutely up there. Um, I think in a lot of instances, this is for sure, as we just talked about, there's applications in the industrial sector. Um, but I think also an area of extreme interest um, is this idea of, you know, hybrid integrated energy systems. Okay, I have no idea what that so means. It's just a fancy word I like to throw out on podcasts. It's down <laughs> Um, so it's integrated, it's hybrid. Yeah. It's got all the fancy words. Um, so there's been a lot of really interesting work done, um, at our national, uh, renewable energy lab, um, on this and in, in collaboration with some of our other, other labs, um, that are really looking at, uh, you know, what are the most efficient, um, potential collaborative, uh, sort of any energy generation teams we can look at, um, for the future. So, so we're talking here about potentially combining, um, you know, wind, solar, and and a small modular reactor, um, or a you know a number of small modular reactors, um, and and this is sort of on the it gets back to our earlier conversation about on days where we do have all the wind and solar that we could possibly need, and that nuclear isn't necessarily um, you know critical to be putting power on the grid. What do we do with the nuclear? Mm. Um, and so the the heat generation is is a piece of that. Um, you can absolutely store that heat. Uh, and have that be used later. You can also use it to heat homes and, and other things. But um, and then on top of that, you're also there's a lot of interest now in looking at you know is there a role for for nuclear, especially in a hybrid system, um, to to help in in uh, producing green hydrogen. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's certainly of interest as well. Um, and then especially in a lot of the emerging markets that we're we're looking at around the world that are interested in these technologies, um, potentially being used for desalination. 
Um, there's some really interesting um, numbers out from the World Resources Institute that are sort of projecting what water stress will look like globally uh, in 2040. And in a lot of the countries that are projected to have the biggest increase in energy demand, they're also ranked um, as extremely high uh, by 2040 on the on the water stress rankings as well. So there's a ton of interest in how how advanced nuclear and nuclear can play a role in that. So wait, how does nuclear solve a desalination? So I've got a bunch of salt water and I have a nuclear reactor. How, do, how does that help? Yeah, so it actually powers the process to, to, to desalinate water. So there's, there's some interesting um, proposals to use. Um, you know, so one example would be a new scale plant that has several different modules. Um, and if you, want, if you can take two of those modules offline because you don't need them, they can then be basically used to power desalination of water, mm. while the okay. rest are continuing to, to to power the grid. So that's just kind of a like a like a switching. Exactly. So to, to pivot a little bit to the to the existing nuclear issue, right? This has become an issue that a lot of the plants that we have or have had for a while are either like they're getting old. And so they're they're sort of scheduled for decommissioning, or utilities are finding that they're not economical because of um, natural gas. And like, what's what what's in you know? So so you sort of combine that, right? Aging plants, uh, maybe the economics of nuclear are not as strong. There's always been a kind of anti nuclear movement, and that coalesces to a lot of pressure to sort of step away from from these existing plants, even as they're still providing the majority of the zero carbon electricity. So what, like, what does one do? About, I mean, you can like tweet, <laughs> like, I think it's bad that we're getting rid of our existing yeah. nuclear, but like, yeah. what's, what's, what's the, what's the issue? Like, where's the, yeah. where's the policy leverage? So this is an interesting topic. And one of my favorite things to talk about right now, because I think that what we've seen, and this is something that Josh and myself and our team have been um, really paying attention to, tracking and engaged with over the past few years, we've really seen a shift um, mm-hmm. around support for existing nuclear um, and and a real consensus growing. Um, uh, you know, not only with with the you know environmental groups and NGOs and and sort of in the advocacy space, but also uh, really big bipartisan support um, and acknowledgement that you know, if we're going to set aggressive decarbonization goals in this country, we are not going to achieve them if we don't keep our existing nuclear plants on as long as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that's one thing that we've seen um, seen change. And then I think another sort of important thing to note here, um, as, you, as you said, um, is there are plants that are scheduled for decommission um, that are at the end of their life cycle. Um, several of these plants have applied for license extensions. Um, the first one to receive their, their license extension was earlier this year, and it'll now be operating through 80 years. Um, and this is an extensively, you know, very, very detailed process that, that the NRC is in charge of and, and making sure that, um, you know, they review everything and, and that, that, yes, this plant with, you know, the different measures they outline can continue to operate. Um, but there are other plants, as you mentioned, that are in danger of closing prematurely because of the, of sort of the economics um, and sort of market competition. And what we're seeing that's really been sort of on a lot of folks' mind recently is that just over the next couple of years, um, there are five different plants that are in danger of prematurely closing. And in all of the states, 
um, where these these plants are in danger of closing. There's four different states. Um, the clean electricity outputs from soon to be retired nuclear uh, are actually greater than all clean electricity outputs from solar and wind combined. Right. Um, so it just it's I could go on all day and throw figures at you of how big <laughs> the, big the impact is of losing these plants. Um, so that gets to your question, which is like, okay, well then what do we do about it? If we kind of have consensus now that we need these things uh, as long as we can, what is the hangup on on keeping them online and getting support in place for this? Um, and so I think that we've actually seen some progress uh, recently. Uh, there was a bill that was introduced, uh, the American Nuclear Infrastructure Act. Um, that's being led by um, Senator Whitehouse and Senator Barrasso. It's a bipartisan bill. Um, Senator Booker was one of the first uh, Democratic senators to sign on as well. Um, that is essentially creating um, what I like to refer to as triage uh, policy okay. uh, to, to keep our existing plants uh, that are in most danger of shutting down in the near term operating um, as sort of a stopgap measure until we can really get a, a broader uh, sort of climate policy that values all carbon-free sources in place. Um, and as we kind of touched on earlier in the in the conversation today, looking very, very unlikely in a divided government scenario that we're going to see a broad clean energy standard or something like that pass within the next year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's not good for these nuclear plants that are on the chopping block as early as next September. And so this bill and and other policies that we can get into, if you'd like, that could potentially act as this triage measure, um, are targeted, need-based, uh, transparent uh, 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 credit uh, system that these plants that are struggling would have to apply to, to receive support um, that essentially gets them through this period that we're in right now. And then as soon as you see something like a clean energy standard pass, um, there is an end date for this program. So you're not, it's not a handout across the board. It's absolutely targeted. So the, the assumption is if if there was like a zero carbon electricity standard, um, or to go back to the dinosaur ages, a cap and trade bill or anything else like that, these existing plants would be economical because there's such a large share of the zero carbon electricity. Absolutely. Yeah. So so you're talking about it's a I assume you would not use the term bailout, but it is a targeted bailout of the of, of the plants, essentially in the hopes of keeping them in operation until right. some bigger framework is in place, at which point, if they're undercut in that scenario, right. so be it. So be it, yep. Yeah, the, the one thing, Matt, that I'd, I'd slightly tweak rather than uh -huh. a bailout is say it's it's correcting how, uh, how how fucked up our system is at the moment, where like fossil fuels continue to get subsidized, and uh, there's a reason that they were subsidized over the years, but in a lot of ways they do not need to be anymore. But the zero carbon attributes of nuclear, amongst others, aren't rewarded. So sure. we've got this distorted system where natural gas comes in super cheap and. In the States, they're saying, yeah, let's go with natural gas because it's really inexpensive, but it produces carbon emissions and so on. Nuclear can't compete with that. And this is an idea that says, nope, we're going to correct for that until there's some other broader national policy that, that prices it in. And so we had a whole era in which natural gas was coming on and it was mostly displacing coal. And so even though it 
generates emissions, it was contributing to emissions reduction, right? But when you when if it starts displacing nuclear, then it's it's the opposite, right? And and gas has the attractive feature that they can turn the plants on and off very easily. They, they can turn the plants on and off very easily. They're also inexpensive to build, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. So you can build them across the country. They've been built to co-fire, to, to pair with renewables easily. Um, but they have the, the downside of, particularly as uh, gas uh, producers are rapacious in their appetite for more markets, looking around and saying, we need to find someone else to displace now that we've displaced so much of the coal. Oh, nuclear. Right. That's a good opportunity to expand our market share. Right. And then and then we're moving backward in climate terms, even even as renewables continue to grow. And and that's sort of the, the scenario uh, you're looking to avoid there. Yeah. And I think it's just important to note too that, you know, when you if you when you shut down a nuclear plant, that's it. Sure. It's not coming back. And so I think, you know, as people think about, well, you know, why do we need to funnel money to these nuclear plants that are in danger to keep them online? If a clean energy standard comes around, we'll just start them back up and, and mm-hmm. keep going. And that just is not an option for, for these plants. That's like the, the physical property of nuclear reactors, right? Yeah. Is you, you basically, you can't turn them off. I mean, you can certainly ramp up and ramp down and they do shut down for refueling and things like that. But once the decommissioning process starts, yeah, mm-hmm. you're, that, that's, a, that's a forged path. Right. And, and, and building new, uh, operating nuclear is inexpensive compared to building, building, building huge nuclear plants is incredibly expensive. Yeah. So, so there would, there would be a big cost to a sort of disruption of, of yeah. supplies. Now, I also think part of the context here, you know, I think people know this, but, but you think about the math is that everybody's like clean future scenario involves using more electricity in the future because we're going to use electricity for cars and we're going to use electricity for home heat and, and things like that. So you need you need to replace more than 100% of the current fossil fuel electricity generation uh, because there's no, I, I mean, there's, there, there, there's no like other zero carbon home heat. Yeah, it's 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 a situation where the first step of removing the need for oil and natural gas and coal requires us to add a lot of electricity and a lot of new gadgets that plug in in various ways. Mm -hmm. And that will require even more build out of renewables and energy storage and in our perspective, nuclear and potentially some natural gas with carbon capture on it uh, to keep electricity production at a very steady and growing level as demand increases. And I I do think the other thing that we do approach this with is we've just got to admit, we don't know what the future holds. You know, it's like a lot of the models. I mean, you may know, (laughs) and in which case, if you can share it with the rest of us, or you may- Just put me in charge, it's fine. You you may follow others and just use it for uh, stock picks. But, uh, you know, if you look at the different models that uh, scientists have run, there's a great variety of scenarios using a large different number of technologies. And our attitude is we shouldn't pick, we should create as many options as possible, both because that makes it more likely we're gonna be able to have an economy that's operating without 
burning fossil fuels that emit carbon and other uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And it also happens to have the benefit of creating a broader political coalition. So as you know, Jackie alluded to earlier, you've got a bunch of Republicans, including John Barrasso, who represents the coal state of Wyoming, working with Sheldon Whitehouse, who's one of the most vocal climate advocates in the United States Senate coming together and saying, hey, this is a good idea. You can see a lot of other opportunities if you embrace every clean energy technology we need, which is going to be the name of the game in the next Congress. All right. So uh, let's let's take another break. And then I, I want to talk about uh, a couple of these, these other technologies you alluded to. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So you, you mentioned carbon capture. Uh, I recently learned that carbon capture and direct air capture are different things. And, and these are sort of, along with nuclear, right? I mean, these are the kind of controversial, I would say, technologies inside the progressive space, right? Where, where one view is that this is, this is nonsense and we just need to shut the fossil fuel people down. Uh, but like, like what, what is it? What are, what are we talking about here? Yeah, every, every community likes to have their interesting battles and debates. Yeah, and this is a the, good one. The, the need for carbon capture and direct air capture in nuclear is the, the progressive and center-left climate communities version of that. Um, so first, carbon capture in the way we're talking about it in tech, technological terms is 
using a technology to take the carbon that is emitted from the top of a smokestack or other source for industrial processes, or if you're using natural gas or coal, though that's really unlikely at this point, to generate electricity, you capture that carbon, you separate it from everything else, and then you put it into the ground and store it. But that's from a factory or technological process that is producing more carbon. So that's one set of technologies, and we can get in that in a second. The other is direct air capture, and that's basically using enormous fans to run air through a filter, separate the carbon from it, and put that into the ground. And then the rest of the air keeps going and we're, we're fine. And it's removing the ambient carbon from the atmosphere and storing it because we've got so much that's already in the atmosphere. We're going to have to remove that or portion of that as well as stop emitting more carbon. So does that does that work? I mean, obviously it would be very convenient uh, if you could just kind of suck carbon out of the air. I mean, that makes all your, you know, you, you see these charts and it's like, we got to go like this, right? Yeah. It, it would be a lot easier if you can assume, well, maybe we overshoot for a little bit, but like then we're, we're sucking carbon out of the air. So it works. It's very expensive. There's no profit in it. You know, okay. all, you're not generating anything that is a commodity at the moment. We don't know how to use all of this stored carbon yet in a way that can make money. Okay. Um, and there isn't a price on carbon high enough to incentivize companies to use it. It also requires the use of a lot of energy. So you're going to have to build more electricity <laughs> to power your carbon, your direct air capture to then remove carbon from the atmosphere. So those are all challenges. And then the other challenge that um, some on the left argue is it creates a moral hazard. Sure. So if if you can capture all the carbon from or d- capture all the carbon from the air that's just ambient, why do you need to stop burning fossil fuels? You can just build more and more of it, overshoot, and that's not a problem anymore. It's it's still far enough away. It's hard to see it at the moment becoming scalable fast enough to be used in that way. Nor would we want to. But as particularly the UN's assessment has found, we're probably going to need it regardless. So we should certainly invest money into research and development and see if it's deployable. And that's the the debate is is often around the moral hazard, as well as for both carbon capture and direct air capture, where where is this going to be located? Um, The United States does not have a great track record of figuring out how to equitably place technologies that might pollute away from communities that have little if no political pull or voice in the process. So oftentimes it's communities of color and rural poor communities who find themselves living on the fence line with big polluting processes, whether it's a power plant or an industrial plant. And there's some very, very understandable concerns and reticence about just seeing that replicated and extended well into the future. So I, I think this this moral hazard issue is... I think it's clearly driving a lot of the the politics here, right? That if you are from the school of thought that is like, I want to lead a protest and shut down every pipeline project, every potential fracking location, like everything in, in the world, then you don't like the idea that well, maybe these these sort of carbon-compatible technologies 
are going to exist, right? Because if if you rule them out, then the only way to decarbonize is to not burn any fossil fuel. And then you should shut down every fossil fuel project that you can get your hands on. Whereas part of the political appeal of saying, no, we're going to continue to pursue direct air capture is then it lets you say, look, it's fine. Right. Like if we if we've got some stuff going on and people are making money like we we could keep keep doing it. So, I mean, you could you can view that as bad. Right. As like this is moral hazard. Or you can say, I mean, I guess what I would say is you're reducing the tensions in the political system that if you tell people to take climate change seriously. Immediately means. We've got to shut down these oil fields then people are going to say, well, then I can't take climate change seriously. Because like, they're just not going to do it, right? Like if, they, if, there's, if there's fossil fuel activity in your community, like as a senator, as a congressman, as a normal person, like you just own restaurants in the area, but that's where you're, you, you're not going to do it, right? Whereas if you say, okay, we have a technology path, it's going to keep reducing emissions, maybe it's a little bit hazy, like what exactly happens in the 2040s. You can get people on that path. Yeah, we need to offer people the vision of what they benefit from it. And especially right now, when people are worried about whether they're going to keep their job, uh, particularly if you get beyond some parts of the coasts that have benefited or maintained uh, decent economies in in certain sectors, even in the middle of the COVID uh, recession, If you go to Western Pennsylvania or New Mexico or Texas or the Dakotas, they're looking at the end of fossil fuels as the end of entire communities. And they don't see a viable path right now to shift how they get their jobs, what their tax base is. So we've got to create that opportunity in a tangible way where they're actually making their livings from that. And then we'll get to the point where we can say, and fossil fuel use is declining and you're not gonna have the fossil fuel industry in that area, but it's gonna have to be more market-driven and really present in how they live on a daily basis. If you go in and immediately say, nope, what you're doing is bad and we need to stop it now, those people are gonna be very motivated to vote against what we're proposing and what they see as in their immediate interest. And we've seen that in, in natural gas and fracking where people who are opposed fracking have it on a list of a large number of issues that they care about, but they're not necessarily going to vote for elected officials on whether they support or oppose fracking. But if you're employed directly or indirectly based on fracking being an industry in your community, you're going to vote on that issue the way gun owners in the past became single issue voters that voted down the line of uh, the NRA. And I think people misunderstand the the indirect issue, right? Because people will make a chart and they'll be like, ah, oh, there's like more zookeepers in America than, you know, natural gas. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But, um, you know, if you think about very few people in Los Angeles work in the movie industry, but the movie industry anchors the economy. Like most people in San Francisco don't work for technology companies. Uh, most people in Washington don't work for the government. But like the fact that the government is here 
it's not just it's indirect employment because, um, you know, government, federal employees spend money and do things. But also it's like I'm here in D.C. because the capital is here. Right. Like you, you won't find me in an employment statistic there, but it's like it's what we're all doing here. Um, and so it's it's, you know, if you go to like Odessa and, and Midland in, in Texas, mo- even most of the people in the Texas oil patch don't work in the oil industry. But like it, it anchors the the economy, and so it's it's very significant to give people something, um, like affirmative, right? Because it's it's just a bigger deal than I think it looks to people kind of sitting at home uh, in, in a coastal city. Well, I think that's I like where you're going with this because I think it's important that we expand the context with which when we're thinking about this. I was in Japan back in February just before. Um, COVID-19 changed all of our lives. Um, And one of the biggest takeaways from that trip, I I met with several different government agencies and we were talking about sort of energy strategy there and and throughout the region, is that um, for many, many countries that are, especially emerging markets, that are wanting to decarbonize while also grow their economy, um, natural gas is still very, very much on the radar for them um, as a path to decarbonization. Um, we're still talking about a lot globally, a lot of countries that are looking at natural gas as that pathway from coal. And and so I think that going back to like, you know, why why even consider carbon capture? You know, what what's the deal with that? I really do think that um, looking ahead at the projections of how much nat- natural gas is still going to factor in, um, you know, sort of globally over the next 20, 30 years and beyond, um, it's absolutely critical for climate reasons that we that we continue to to develop and 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 innovate around carbon capture technologies um and i think that there's just one other thing to mention on that point is that you know for a lot of these emerging economies they look at the rest of the world especially the west and the fact that you know our growth uh and sort of path that led us to be um, sort of, sort of leaders in the global economy was was built through fossil fuels, um, and so now saying, um, okay, well, we need you to decarbonize um, at the same time that you're now finally trying to to really expand and grow your economy. They absolutely are going to need technologies like carbon capture uh, to sort of help achieve that in an equitable way. Right. I mean, that's always important to to be mindful of the the global you know, nature of this issue that we're looking at in much of the world, people, um, people would be really looking to increase their personal energy consumption, like, like a lot from the current baseline, um, places where most people don't own motor vehicles of any kind, where in Africa, uh, and, and substantial parts of India, lots of people still don't have electricity in their homes. So it, it's really challenging to persuade people in those conditions to rule out any kind of useful technology. And the more that we can develop like anything at all that works here, that, that it opens up the the possibility space in the developing world a lot. And there's a nice confluence of objectives with that, because Mm -hmm. you can see how with president elect Biden talking about building back better, and focusing on using investments in clean energy and bringing more manufacturing back home as a way to both create more American jobs and create opportunities to 
restore our influence overseas and create more trading opportunities overseas than we've had, along with Republican interest in technologies like carbon capture and nuclear, and we're going to have to get Republican support for any kind of investment, appropriations, new bills coming through Congress. And it's a place where you can see that agreement, where the president-elect and House and Senate can look at what happened over the last two years, last four years even, and say, hey, one of the very few areas that clean energy continued to do okay under all of the insanity that was the Trump administration was with Congress, both parties basically said, we're going to ignore Trump's draconian cuts to the energy innovation budget, and we're going to give a lot of money to everything, including renewables. And so the the Biden team gets and has been very vocal about us needing to build more in the United States and export it. And Republicans, along with Democrats, have said, yeah, this is a good idea. We see the benefits of that. So what's t- t- tell us more about that in, in specifics, because I think uh, there was a there was a a decent amount of news happening all during the Trump years, and people may have may have missed some some policy developments. So, like, what <laughs> what, what happened with that energy investment fund? Like, and and what do we what, what what can we learn from that? First of all, I find it shocking that amongst everything else, people weren't honed in on the appropriations process for clean energy innovation. It was all. I mean, it was everywhere. It was all I could think about. For people who weren't searching obscure trade publications to find that news, basically what you saw was Democrats and Republicans looking at basically the Trump administration proposing zeroing out most of the spending for investment in solar and wind and carbon capture even and on and on and saying, no, that's not going to work. And so what they did is focused on providing funding at the same levels, essentially, that the Obama administration suggested, so that you had continued investment in developing energy storage, so that you not only had batteries coming down in cost for electric vehicles, so that probably by 2025 or 2027 or so, an electric vehicle is going to be sold for the same cost as an internal combustion engine vehicle, but you also are going to be able to use energy storage for balancing demand on the grid and making renewables more diverse. You have a big investment program, as as Jackie's talked a lot about, for advanced nuclear. So that is continuing apace. And that was a program started under President Obama that's continued carbon capture, looking into hydrogen tax credits so that carbon capture facilities can start getting built. All of that continued to happen. Many of these ideas were begun by both Democrats and Republicans five, six years ago, and Congress kept the ball rolling on all of that, despite some really egregious policy choices, even in the climate and energy space, while we were all focused on much, much more immediate crises that the Trump administration created. I'm I'm glad that Josh brought up, um, you know, I'm glad that we're talking about appropriations. I just wanted to take a minute to to say, I mean, and this is honestly something that I've just become aware of um, through our work at Third Way over the past couple of years. Um, you know, Matt, when you and I first talked, you know, we talked about what is the case for optimism, right? Uh, As we sort of move into a divided government situation with climate policy. And I'll tell you, over the last two years, the biggest legislative impact that we've really seen on climate change has come through uh, these appropriations. 
Um, and, you know, we're seeing it again now uh, with both the House and Senate bills um, really, really either sustaining or increasing, um, uh, you know, funding across the board for, for innovation on new, on new uh, clean technologies. So this is just something for, for people listening at home, right? You often think about the legislative process as, oh, so-and-so has a such-and-such bill, and maybe that'll pass, or maybe the president will propose a whatever bill. Uh, But also each year, Congress does these big bills, right? In theory, agency by agency, oftentimes they do omnibuses that roll together all the different departments, and they say like how much money each program gets. And they work on them forever. And these days they're like always way late. And then it comes together and everyone's like, oh my God, there might not be a government. And then something passes. And a lot of policy is actually made in those vehicles. It just, it doesn't get discussed in the same way that like House Democrats something plan would be, right? right? Because there's just a million moving parts, but it just makes an incredible difference if you flatline a program, if you keep pace with inflation, if you go up 8%. Like the, and, and that that's what we're talking about here, right? That like these programs have existed for a while, but the amount of money that you actually put into the pipeline can really change a lot. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example that I like to use on, on this. Um, so there's been a bill, the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act, um, that's been, you know, finding a couple of different pathways potentially to pass and move through Congress uh, over over the past year and a half. Um, and a big part of that bill is the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program that will build two advanced reactors within seven years, or by around 2027. We haven't seen that bill passed, but last year, the appropriate in appropriations, we saw the first tier of funding for that program that allowed it to launch. Um, we see in the next in FY21 continued and, and increased funding for that. Um, even though the bill, the really exciting, you know, the bill that everyone's talked about hasn't passed and we still want that to pass to authorize this, we've been able to start that process. And the selection was announced earlier this year for the two first reactors that will be built. And we're moving forward on that because of what's happened with appropriation. So um, absolutely, there's there's no question that um, a lot uh, can happen and move forward uh, because because of the sort of like fly under the radar uh, you know, appropriations component. Um, all right. So we've been going for a while here. Um, so I'll let you guys go, but, um, you know, any like last thoughts, like any, any questions I I should have asked you guys topics we should have raised? You know, there's, look, there's a lot that could get done. We talked about appropriations. There's also, uh, tax credits. Um, there was a weird instance at the end of last year when the, Trump White House became aware that there was going to be an agreement around taxes to provide continued tax breaks for purchasing electric vehicles and solar and wind. And I, they didn't like the electrical electric vehicle component. So they sidelined that. That will likely become an area for agreement. And you could hmm. see a whole package there done. So, you know, the if, if you think about the federal government as, as really in the most basic sense being boiled down to regulating to stop bad things and then direct spending to invent or build good things and then indirect spending through tax credits to incentivize good things. The spending money 
and indirect incentives could continue at a scale that's very important for climate over the next year and two years. The big wild card in this is what does Mitch McConnell do? And I think that's the one part where uh, we are going to operate and we need to operate with the expectation that people are going to stand up and say, the government needs to act. The United States is in crisis and it's time to put decisions around the good of the country over raw accumulation and deployment of power. Will Mitch McConnell all of a sudden decide that that makes sense? Well, now, now I feel very pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, but it's, it's the huge wild card and we're sort of, we're operating under two hopes here, right? One is that Mitch McConnell is gonna say, yeah, let's do what's good for the country rather than necessarily what is the best exercising of accumulating and deploying my own power and or that other Republicans are going to say to McConnell, I'm going to lose my Senate seat if we don't do things that are good for my constituents. And then you're not going to have any power. Um, I, there's no I, I, there's no way to tell how that's going to play out. But I think we have to try. And we have to keep pushing at it and see how it plays out over the course of the year and find ways other than simply calling Republicans, uh, you know, corporate sellouts or the tools of the rich to deploy some sort of pain and pressure on them to support action around climate and clean energy to build more stuff and create more jobs so that that might happen. And I think that's that's the huge wild card amongst all of this um glass half full discussion that we've had. Um, let me thank you guys both so much, uh, Jackie Camford, Josh Freed, and thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs>